So Exodus 23 to 17. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that, that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your, do- your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth and the sea and all that is in it and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. All right, that's a powerful lectern. All right, just gonna hold on to the eagle. All right. Um, well, welcome everyone. It's uh, it's great to be here on our weekend away. This is our fourth ever weekend away. Is that right? Yeah, four. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, a couple of things in making the most of this weekend. One is to meet new people. So you'll be meeting people from both congregations, eleven and four. So it'd be great to kind of to cross the divide and to meet people there. But also, yeah, for those Connect folk who are coming through, it's a great chance to get to know them a little bit as well. Um, but really the biggest thing is that, um, that over this weekend, we're going to be getting stuck into the Word of God and particularly looking at this issue of idolatry. And, um, and like Karen said, most of the time when we think of idols, we think of just, it's a generic kind of word. You think of poor Shannon and him just battling away at, at rural RSLs, getting 80 bucks a gig when he should be Guy Sebastian. Um, but, um, you know, but in the, in the end, uh, when the Bible talks about idolatry, one, it's not a minor theme. This is one of the biggest themes in the Bible as you follow it from Old through to New Testament. It is a massive theme. Uh, but more than that, the idea of idolatry is serious and has serious consequences. So what we're going to be looking at is how it is that the Bible explains idolatry and how it is that the gospel answers that. And the one that we're starting with today, so this morning we kick off with the idol of power. And this one probably takes me back to when I was, I think, 19. I was first year out of high school. And I, and I had a friend who, who I knew reasonably well. So for the, probably from like year 8 or 9 through to year 12, we saw each other heaps. So we were pretty close friends. But year, year 12, so he dropped out in year 11. And for year 12, he went up the coast to live with, so up to the sort of the Gold Coast to live with his mum for a year um, and to sort of just take a break from everything that had been going on in Sydney. Anyway, uh, I was at home one day and we got a knock on the door and when I opened the door, there was a, a guy there who my first thought was, surely this man is here to extort me. He, had a, he was huge, he had a ponytail, he had a bum bag, and I'm not, this is an exaggeration for the sake of telling stories, this was really true. He had those bodybuilder pants made out of an American flag, so that, like, if you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, like, it, it was, and I'm not kidding, it was literally, that is what this guy was wearing, right, and he was standing before me, and when I opened the door, he didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything. Because I didn't have any context for this conversation. I don't know why this guy was at my door. And as I looked at him, it's almost like the facial recognition thing started to come together. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my friend. When he went away, he was about my build, like reasonably kind of skinny, you know, like he was you know, a, a sporty type, but not really athletic build or anything like that. And now he was huge tanned he got the he got the full gold coast (laughs) he went he went 11 out of 10 gold coast right and came back he was yet bronzed big like tattoos on the neck and everything I just I couldn't believe it and so uh, like after I'd worked out who he was you know we kind of started chatting about what had been going on 
And here was the weird thing. When he'd come back to Sydney, he'd come with a real agenda. He'd come back huge, and he told me he, told me he hadn't juiced up at all. And he's like, I was like, are you roiding, man? He's like, no, 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 not at all. It's all natural. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, whatever. And I, I look, it was that big that I'm, I'm not going to argue with you, am I? Like, you know, I haven't been juicing, so I'm not going to do it. Um, but, um, but what he'd been doing since he came back to Sydney was he'd been settling old scores. So he'd been going around to, to friends, or sort of old friends, who he felt he had a debt to settle with and settling those debts. So when I, I mean, I joked about extorting, but he was really going back to, there was a guy I remember that he knew, and I remember he talked about him a fair bit. And there must have been one moment when they went out on one particular night where he kind of borrowed or half stole 20 bucks from him. And he went back and told him that he was going to have to pay him 200 bucks. And he was going around and settling all these debts. And most of them were like these incredibly minor incidents. I could have imagined that the guys who were, you know, kind of facing up to him were thinking like, I can't even remember that happening. But for some reason, in his mind, they'd become these huge events and these huge debts that needed settling. And so he came back into town to sort of to settle all family business and to make sure it was all done and dusted. It was as though he had this kind of like this, this you know, black book of, of, of old accounts that really needed to be worked out. And you think, what, what would drive a man to do that? To go away for a year, to pump up, and to come back to Sydney to settle all debts. And ones that were really, in most people's minds, not even debts. I reckon it's this. It's the worship of an idol. And it's the worship of the idol of power. If you fear looking weak, you will probably turn your heart to worship power. The truth is, everybody worships something. We don't have an option. God has made us in His image, and He has made us to worship Him. But when we don't, we look for something else to worship. And when it comes to worshiping the idol of power, it's the kind of idol that can make you juice up for a year and come back and settle all insignificant debts because you feel that they were moments when you looked weak and you need to take care of business. And so for him, that was what he did. But it's not the case that everybody that worships power is going to respond to it in the exact same way. And what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look generally at how it is that idols work and take hold of our heart. And then specifically at how this idol of power, what it does and the damage it wreaks and how it is that the the gospel is the answer to it. So I'm going to pray that God would do that work in us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the one true God. We praise you that you love us with an eternal and everlasting love. We praise you that you are the God who is worthy of all worship. And God, we know that in our hearts that we are prone to wander, that we're prone to worship things that are not you but are are, are poor imitations of you. They take hold of our heart and our lives and wreak havoc. And we pray that this morning, that as we look at these things, that you'd be convicting us by your Holy Spirit, that your word would come to bear on our hearts and minds, that we might repent of idolatry and live wholeheartedly for you and your glory. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, the passage that we looked at uh, in Exodus 20 is a significant one in the, in the, kind of the, the story of the whole Bible. Israel have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They got there because there was a famine in the land. And if you know the story of Joseph, uh, he sort of became Pharaoh's advisors. His brothers, who sort of were Abraham's descendants, came over. And the Jewish people settled in the land of Egypt to avoid the famine in their own land. They multiplied and multiplied and became a huge people group until a Pharaoh came along who was like, these people are an absolute threat. So he puts them into slavery for 400 years. And they cry out to God... And God answers them. And God decides that he's going to rescue them. And he tells Moses that he's going to do that. And the reason he says he's going to do it is for the sake of worship. He's calling his people out of Egypt so that they can worship him fully and truly. And so when we get to this passage in Exodus 20, as they've left Egypt, as they're moving through the desert and they're at Mount Sinai, it's significant because they're coming out of Egypt and God said, look, I did all of this stuff. I sent all the plagues. I, did all, I, I worked my mighty works to pull you out of this land so that you would worship me. And I'm about to send you into your own land and I want you to get clear from the start that you're to worship me. And so he starts with this. Exodus 20 starts with this. 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in water under the earth. God says, I saved you, you're my people, you now belong to me, I have redeemed you, you're my own, and you are now to worship me. He says, you don't have no other gods before you. Not because there are other gods and God's just the best one amongst them, but he's saying because they are, they're not real gods. He's saying the reason you're to worship me is there's only one God who could save you out of Egypt. There was only one God who could reach in and redeem a people for himself, and it's me, the true and living God. Therefore, you're to have no little g gods because they don't exist and they can't save. And he makes it clear that they're not to have any statues. And this made the Jews significant in the ancient Near East. In terms of the architectural, uh, the, uh, what is it? What am I talking about? What's the historical digging one? Why am I looking at you? you do. Archaeological, yeah, architectural, right. When they, when they dig sites in Israel, one of the obvious things is there are idols in and amongst that land that they find among the artifacts, but significantly less than the regions around them because they weren't to have any physical statues of their gods. Even as you read the Psalms, you'll see things like other nations would mock them and say to them, where is your God, Israel? We've got a temple and we've got a statue. We've got Marduk or whoever it is in the ancient Near East. I mean, you know, the, you know all the cool ones, right? Um, but, um, but when they... When they did that, they would mock them, saying, you don't have a God. And it was because God had said to them, don't have any statues or images of me, because none of those can represent me. You're not to be like the nations around you. You don't make a God out of something that I've made out of creation. You're to worship me alone. And you might be thinking, well, look, that's talking about physical idols, and that's kind of, you know, that's the Old Testament. Um, that, was, that was sort of a, a context thing, but it continues on to the New Testament. When you look in the book of Romans, when Paul is making the argument and the case for Jesus' death on the cross, look where he starts off in Romans 1, 18 to 25. It'll come up on the screen for you there. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because they have had it shown to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust, the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What does Paul say here? He's arguing that the wrath of God, the anger of God is revealed against people because they have worshipped things that are not God. They have, they have taken something that God has made within His creation, something that's beneath Him, and said, that's my God, I worship that over and above the true and living God. And He's saying, essentially, worship is this. It's exchanging a lie, it's exchanging the truth for a lie. It's exchanging the true God for a false God. It's saying, I won't worship you, God, I'll worship something else, whatever else it is that I choose. That's what idolatry is. And so anything can become an idol. Anything that God has made that is worshipped as though it were God is an idol. Anything. That's why Paul says later on in Colossians that greed is idolatry. It's not a physical idol, but it's the worshipping of something that is not God as though it was the ultimate thing. And so we learn a couple of things about idolatry from this passage. And the first one is this, that sin is downstream from idolatry. Wherever there is sin, there is a worship problem upstream. That sin starts in the heart. First, we love something that is not God as though it were God, and then sin is the natural result. Because what happens is when you say, I don't trust God, and I don't trust His Word and how He orders His universe, I trust something else, then there's going to be a clash. Because when those two things are pulling in different directions, we say, I'm going with the idol instead of God. Sin is always downstream from idolatry. 
upstream is the heart, upstream is the exchanging of truth for a lie, and downstream is all the sin and behavior. You see it in this passage, right? He says, we worship the creature instead of the creator. And then what happens? God gives them over to the lusts of their heart. Later in the passage, we see that that's what, that's what um, passes us over to malice and deceit and hatefulness and all the other things. They're all downstream from idolatry. But the third thing we see from this passage is that idols always break the hearts of their lovers. This is, this is what C.S. Lewis says about idols. He says, an idol will always break the heart of its lover. Why? Because it's not a true God. It, it can't deliver like God can deliver. Have a look at this from David Foster Wallace. Like a little while back, if you were with us in our Ecclesiastes series, you might have seen an animation or like kind of a, a video with a voiceover and it was, um, it was sort of a keynote address that someone gave at a something. And um, <laughs> I really lost for We got up at 5 a.m. this morning. So, you know, from a little bit short on words and whatever. Um, but um, in, this, in this address, so he was kind of talking about a whole bunch of things. So you might remember that. But uh, as part of this address, there's one excerpt about worship. And David Foster Wallace was an atheist or agnostic at best. So he definitely wasn't a believer. But look at what he says about worship. It'll come up on the screen for you. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always end up feeling ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. This is the truth. And you can see it even as an unbeliever that everybody worships something. And if it's not the true and living God, it will destroy you. It will absolutely destroy you. David Foster Wallace wouldn't have landed there. All he could see from the outside was like, look, I don't know, worship some kind of formal religion because it's less destructive than the others. The Bible would say, go even further, don't exchange the lie of the truth for a lie. Worship the true and living God because that's where life is found. And if you worship anything else, it will wreak havoc in your life. It will destroy you. And more than that, the wrath of God will be upon you. It says in this passage, the wrath is revealed. That is, people feel the consequences of worshiping idols right here and now. And they're almost the, the tremors leading to the cataclysmic earthquake that will come when the judgment of God lands on all people of all nations. It's kind of a forewarning. See, here's the problem with idols. They promise to save us from our deepest fear and deliver us to our deepest joy. An idol is something that we love because we believe it will bring us ultimate happiness. And instead of believing that ultimate happiness is found in God and in knowing Him, We believe it's found in something else. And so the reason we turn to idols is they promise to take us from our deepest fear to our deepest joy. In short, they they promise to take us from our hell to our heaven. And yet they can't do it. But here's one, one sort of step deeper that I wanted to take us. I think if someone is obsessed about money, we'd be inclined to say that money is their idol. And in some ways, that's that's a helpful way of understanding it. But in another way, it's kind of blank because people want money for all kinds of different reasons. Some people want money because they think if I have money, I can buy stuff and then people will like me. Others think, well, if I have money, then I can control things. I'll have a house and a secure future and I'll be in charge of everything in my life. Other people feel like if I have money, I can tell people what to do. I'll be a, I'll be a significant person. I won't be a nobody. I'll be a somebody. People want money for different reasons. It's the same with sex. People want sex for different reasons. Some want it because they just want approval. Even the act itself is not particularly enjoyable for them. What they want is for someone else to love them and to have something tangible that can say, I am loved. For other people, it's about power. It's about demonstrating that they are better than other people. They can control other people's affections or hearts. 
For others, it's about control. It's about manipulating another person in order to have them under control. See, money and sex are, are, are kind of through roads through which many other idols kind of go. And so what I want to say is that there are, when we, when we go after money or sex or any of those kind of things, or whether it's a job or career, all these sort of things, there is actually a deeper idol behind that. And over this weekend, we're going to be looking at four deep idols that are there in Scripture that cover really probably most of our sinful behavior and most of, most of our false worship. And they are this, power, control, approval, and comfort. Power, control, approval, and comfort. And where we're going to start today is looking at the deep idol of power. And to look at this, we're going to look at one story in the Bible where Jesus confronts his disciples very directly over their love of power. And it comes in Matthew uh, 20, starting at uh, sentence 20. It will come up on the screen for if you've got a Bible, you can um, open up to it. The story starts like this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. Now, the sons of Zebedee were James and John, and they were called, we're told in one of the Gospels, they were called Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And uh, the likely reason for that is because they had a pretty strong personality. It could also be that Jesus was just trolling them. They were a bit sort of, you know, whatever. And so Jesus like, here come the sons of thunder. And like, don't Jesus, it's glandular. It's not, you know. But the like, probably the likely thing, given the rest of the stories, is that they were, they were just, they were strong men. And they were quite forceful. They were, they were part of the inner three. So there was Peter and then James and John. James and John were brothers. John wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John and Revelation. He was the last one to die. And James was the first one to be executed. Right? So John witnessed all of his close friends die. He watched the betrayal of Judas. All that happened and died last. And the rest of them were martyred. But they were known as the Sons of Thunder. Um, but for some reason, for, for some reason, even though they were really tough and forthright and kind of known for it, they get their mum to go to Jesus. And the reason we know that is, in other ones, it doesn't include the mum bit because it's clearly them who are requesting it. But this time, they thought they'd be clever and just, you know, Jesus might be a bit more of a soft touch with mum. So mum heads up to him and says, Jesus, just want to ask you something s- small. And uh, Jesus says, what's up? And she says, um, she, she says, nothing major. Don't need to fuss about it. Sort of quick request. But um, when you rule over the universe on your throne, could my two boys sort of be on the right and the left? Would that be okay? And, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, these guys who are obviously pretty strong personalities, here they desire something and something's revealed. They want greatness. And this is the first thing it tells us about the idol of power, is that if you idolize power, if you want to be a somebody rather than a nobody, if your greatest fear is weakness and you want to demonstrate that you are powerful, you'll try and get near powerful people. You'll be drawn to powerful people. And partly here they've seen what Jesus' life, that he's cast out demons that he's drawn massive crowds before him. And these guys have said, look, this, there's something about this guy. And at the end of days, we want to be close to this. We want to be close to power. If you worship power, you want to be around powerful people and get as close to them as you possibly can in the hope that some of it will rub off. Motivational speakers, I've seen this kind of thing. They'll, they'll, they'll do that thing where they pace back and forth and they'll say, proximity, power. <laughs> proximity, power. Who are your five closest friends? You are the average of those friends, right? And the idea is, the idea is that you get, if you want to be powerful, get powerful people around you and they will kind of rub off on you and you'll be a significant, powerful person. Be around hardworking, successful, powerful people if you worship power. And so this is what they ask. They want to be on the right and left because they know that a king's most trusted people, the people who have the most power after the kings are the ones on the right and left because they're the ones who have opportunity to kill the king. And so they're his most trusted people. And so they're hoping at the end of days, not knowing anything really about what's to come, that they'll be next to Jesus. But look at how Jesus deals with this. In sentences 22 to 23, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I drink? He's talking kind of in veiled terms. They have no idea what he's talking about. I just love that James and John, like he says, can you drink the cup that I drink? They're like, yep. <laughs> like they don't want to seem stupid. Obviously, they've already sent their mum to ask this thing. And they, go, they don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knows that they don't know. So he's winding them up in front of everyone. But he says to them, can you drink the cup which I drink? And we know that that's the cup of the wrath of God that Jesus will suffer in order to bring about the will of God. And see what Jesus says to them. He gets that they're immature. They don't understand how much this idol of power has taken hold of their hearts. And he says to them, look, you, you will drink of this cup. And he's not lying. James is beheaded only a few chapters into the book of Acts. John suffers all his life seeing his friends die, is tortured before death and doesn't die, and ends his life in exile on the island of Patmos. They will suffer. They have no idea what they're signing up for almost at this point. But they say, yep. And he tells them that they will. But look what happens next. In verses uh, 24 to 28, it says this. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, when the ten heard this, they were indignant. When the, when the other disciples who were there heard what they had done, they were so annoyed. And they weren't annoyed because they were godly and they were just, you know, really like just humble, servant-minded people. They were annoyed because they're like, damn it, why didn't I think of doing that? These guys have kind of jumped the gun and they've got ahead. We should have thought of that first. And they're indignant at these other disciples. Because if they were really humble and servant-minded, they wouldn't be worried. They'd be like, it's all right, Jesus is going to sort them out. right? We know what it means to follow Jesus. We know who he is, that he's a servant king. It's fine. But instead, they're mad because they're like, I wish I got in there and thought of that. And this is one of the other things about the idol of power. It'll teach you to be jealous. You'll be jealous of people who get ahead of you for less work. You'd be jealous of people who get more opportunities for power because you're like, that should be me. That's where I would find happiness. I don't want to be the weak one or the sucker or whoever it is. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I push the envelope? Why didn't I push people a bit harder? Why didn't I jump ahead of the game? And you'll constantly be comparing yourself to other people. See, the God of power loves to set his children against one another. He's a false God. He doesn't unite like the true and living God who draws together a family, his church, idols will divide their worshippers among one another because it is a false God. And here, one of the issues is that, that power really wants to be honored. So here they want greatness. They want to be revered by other people. If you worship power, this would be one of the dynamics in your life that you would rather be respected than liked. Approval, the idol of approval we'll get to tonight, that's the one of wanting other people to approve of you and say that you're a good person and like you. But if you worship power, you don't mind if people don't like you. What you want is respect. That's why often you'll be really career-driven because those are the people who can get ahead. Anyone who really just wants to be liked isn't going to make it past middle management. It's the people who are happy to piss everybody off in order to get the job done because they don't mind if people don't like them. They want to be respected. I don't know if you remember that, there's the, the British version of The Office, um, the original one, not the US one, uh, which is also great, by the way, I love them both, but the, the original one just had uh, a special cringe power that could never be reproduced. And, um, and in talking about, his, so basically, if you don't know the story, it's a super insecure boss, and so it's, it's duplicating what many workplaces kind of experience, super insecure boss. He's trying to be cool with all the staff, but he's incompetent at leading. Um, and then there's another guy who comes along who's the opposite, who's super competent, but really well liked by the staff. Just, you know, the great boss kind of as a contrast. 
And, um, and so the whole dynamic of the show is him, his insecurities just bubbling out all over the place constantly. And it's, it's punishing to watch, right? Like, even though you know it's fake, it's, it's just causing you to cringe, maybe because you've ever seen it in yourself or someone else. And so half the episode, sometimes it gets so stressful, I actually fast-forwarded it. <laughs> and I went it back and watched it, right? It's just, like, so stressful. Um, but in explaining his character, Ricky Gervais, the writer, says... Um, that his character, David Brent, has just made one crucial mistake. He's confused like for respect. And that's his confusion. And that's, that's everything that's wrong with all that he does. It's just that one simple thing. He's confused being liked with being respected. And so the whole show is him hoping that if the staff really like him, if he's cool and jokey and all that kind of stuff, then they'll respect him, but they're not the same thing. Respect is when you say, you, you can not like someone and respect them, and you can respect, uh, and you can, what is it? Like someone or not, uh, you know, you get the idea, right? You can have one or the other or both, right? And, uh, and he'd made that crucial mistake. But respect means I respect your authority. I would even follow you. You might even say of a certain boss, I can't stand them, but man, they're a hard worker. Or, or of a particular lecturer, um, you, might be, you might say, look, oh, they're an absolute jerk, but man, they're as sharp as anything, right? I, I, I almost envy their, their intellectual sort of prowess. If you go after power, what you want is respect. You don't mind so much if people don't like you. What you want is for people to say, I wouldn't mind being like that part of them. They're hardworking. They're, they're driven. Um, they have real influence. Man, don't cross them in a meeting, right? That's the kind of thing that people who want greatness are after. And this is what they're after here. In this passage, the, the sons of thunder don't mind charging ahead and annoying all the other disciples what they want is to be near greatness. But Jesus rebukes them. And he says to them, I know what you're thinking. I know you want greatness. And I know you have no idea the kind of suffering that you're going to face as my disciples. That was the little cup thing that he threw out there. But then he says to them, when you look out there in the world and you see the great ones, and he's talking, he's really thinking about their context. He's in Rome. You know, at this point, the greatest empire on earth. And he says, when you think about the leaders that are over Jerusalem, so the Jewish leaders, or the Roman leaders who are over them, or Caesar who is overall, when you think about those who have power out there, think about what they do. They lord it over people. They dominate those who are under their charge. They, they rule over them. And Jesus says, not so among you. That's what happens when you worship power. That's for them who don't know the true and living God. But he says, but not for you. You're not to worship power, and so you're not to lead like they lead. He says, whoever would be great among you is to be least of all. Whoever would exalt themselves will be humbled. And he's not mucking around. These are no idle words. Jesus knows that he's going to live out what this means in front of their very eyes. As he rebukes them with his words, he's about to rebuke them with his life. Because what he's going to say to them, they've seen his power. They know he has power. They know that he can calm a storm if he feels like it. Winds, wind and waves have to obey him. They have no other response. When Jesus says stop, they stop. And so Jesus can control anything. He has power over all. And yet he's about to lay down his life for his enemies. Power only belongs to God. And yet God uses it to serve. Christ is the ultimate example. God uses his immense power to save those who are truly weak, dead even in sin. Even in judgment, God is using his power to protect. God cannot let sin go. We've, look, look at the world that we live in. Look what happens if God does not judge. If he puts it off forever, look what the consequences would be. When God exercises power, it is for the good of others. And God has created power and made it a part of his created order. And his intended design is that those who have power use it to serve. That they're meant to use it to serve. Here's the truth. Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In God's economy, that's how it will happen. Because no one really has any power and every one of us is truly weak. We are weak beyond measure. If we were really honest about it, we are completely and totally weak. We are not powerful. Power belongs to God, and we might have it and steward it for a time, but ultimately it doesn't belong to us, and ultimately it will be taken from us. 
I remember reading the, the biography of Stalin. Joseph Stalin, if you don't know, kind of ruled over communist Russia. Um, he kind of took over after Lenin. So after the revolution in whatever it was, 1917, um, after several years, you know, Lenin dies out. Stalin takes over. And, um, and he, he is arguably the most powerful man that has ever lived in all history. Even his contemporaries um, who had, you know, maybe similar rules or empires did not have the kind of control and power and decision-making power that he had over all of communist Russia and over all of communist Europe and what they took over. There, in, in one part of the biography, there was one people group who were being a difficulty and he got together with a group of men in a room and decided that they would be cut out of the economy. That means because the government controlled all jobs, that they would have no way to earn money, that they'd be moved to the edge of Siberia, and that really an entire race was decided that they would die on that afternoon. That's the kind of power that he had. When he cut off supply routes to Eastern Europe, millions of people died. He had the power of life and death. He had more power than anyone ever before him, and he was better at guarding it than anyone else. He would routinely just purge the people around him, so there was just a sense of fear around him constantly. But Robert Service's bio, which is probably the standard bio for, for Stalin, records that when he died, there are several different accounts, but the most, the most likely one is this, that he died alone. And the reason he died alone was because no one was ever allowed to come into him. When he was sleeping, no one was allowed into his quarters. So the, the, the bodyguards outside his door were too afraid to ever knock on the door or to go into him. They were told when he goes in there, he stays in there. So after a night of drinking, he heads into his room. He, he has cardiac arrest. I can't actually remember what it was. It was something significant. It was a, uh, a stroke or something like that. But when he's fitting on the bed, no one can come into him because no one's allowed in the room. And it was only after almost a day and a half that they actually had the courage to go in there and find out what was happening because he hadn't come out. And by that stage, it was too late. And the most powerful man in the world who has ever lived died alone in his own excrement. That's how he died. Because the truth is, even the most powerful man who has ever lived on earth was weak. And he died in weakness. God alone has power. And when we worship power, it's an illusion. We don't really have it. Even those who manage to have it better than anyone else ultimately will be taken from this world without their asking. Nobody has real power except God. But when we worship power, we want more of it. We want to pretend that I'm not weak. I'm significant. I'm somebody in this world. I have power. And when we do that, it gives us a sense of identity. And more than that, when you worship power, it depersonalizes the people around you. When you worship power instead of the true and living God, you start to treat people as a means to an end. And the people around you are either your allies or your enemies. And you'll see them in that light. They will either give me power or they'll take it away. My workmates are not my workmates, they're my competitors. And they're either here to take promotions or to help me get promotions. You'll see every relationship in life in that manner. And because of this, people who struggle with the, the idea of power, with the idol of power, will tend to struggle with the emotion of anger. You'll be an angry person. Because you'll be constantly avenging yourself and demonstrating that you are powerful and you're not weak. Like my friend who wanted to demonstrate that he was powerful, he wanted to vent his anger against anyone who had ever made him look weak, no matter how insignificant it was. The idol of power will take over your life and your relationships and how you see people in the world. Recently, I watched a movie called The Founder, which if you've seen it, is about uh, the guy, so it's about Ray Kroc, who kind of founded McDonald's. And if you know the story, it's kind of, not, no spoilers here really, but um, there were two guys who started McDonald's, and um, they were the McDonald brothers, obviously, and they, um, they came up with a thing called the, like it was called the Speedy Way Service or something like that, but they came up with a genius idea of streamlining a kitchen so that they could make a burger in 30 seconds. And it was revolutionary, right? No one else had done it. This was the first genuine fast food joint. Ray Kroc shows up there to sell some kind of ice cream making machines, sees what they're doing, thinks this is incredible. Let's take it worldwide. And that's what he does. Long story short, he does kind of, you know, sideline them and all that sort of stuff. But what you see is that he has this desire to be successful, to be a, a powerful person. And in the beginning of the movie, before everything goes down, his wife says to him, look, 
you've, you've got us this house, you've got us a nice life. When are you going to stop? Because he was talking about this McDonald's idea that he was thinking about. And he says, probably never. And what you see from there on is the consequences of that. That every relationship in his life he now sees in terms of his McDonald's franchise business. So his wife, he starts to feel like she's not really supporting him in helping him make this thing happen. And so he cuts her out of his life and he finds a woman who seems more attractive to him because she's business-minded. And so he starts to cut people out of his life who are inconvenient, who aren't pushing forward his franchises. They have a group of friends. He sells franchises to them. They mess them all up. So he says to his wife, I think we need new friends. And in that life, they're not, they're not really friends, are they? They're clients. And his wife wasn't a wife. She was a business partner. And everything in his life became around this idol of power of being absolutely successful. Because idols depersonalize people. If the idol of power is starting to affect you, it will affect your marriage first. Paul Tripp says, idols abuse our spouses. Whatever you worship, the first person to feel it will be that person nearest to you in your life. He says that this is the case. You, you might start to resent them. You might feel like when you get home from work, all they say is, why do you have to work so much? And you think, why can't you just be more supportive? Because you're starting to see everyone in terms of, will they give me what I want in life? With your kids, many parents, because they worship power, find their identity at work. And when they drive away from work, they're driving away from their identity. And so when they're at home, they find it very hard to be present because they're there with these kids who they don't care if you're a chief exec. They don't care if people at work respond to you and they do what you say and they fear you. They don't care. You're nothing to them other than, you know, mum or dad. But they see through it all. I mean, they, say, they see the reality that you're just a person. Even if you're the president of the United States, it doesn't matter. When you get home, you're just dad. When you get home, you're just mum. But if you worship power, that will be hard to deal with. And you'll start to say things like, why can't I get any respect around here? When I tell my kids to do things, yeah, it may or may not happen. When I tell people at work to do things, they do it. Because they know I have control over their paycheck and over their lifestyle and everything they hold dear. At work, I'm somebody. At home, I'm nobody. And so you'll spend more and more and more time at work. It doesn't have to be work. It could be a creative pursuit. It might be in being an artist or whatever it is. Wherever is the arena where you're finding you are powerful or you have influence, that's where you'll gravitate towards because that will be your identity if you worship power. You'll avoid low and unimportant things. You'll feel like they're beneath you. You'll avoid low people. You'll be drawn to influential people who can help you be more influential. You'll be critical of people who have no drive because you're like, you guys are losers. Can't you get your life together? You will worship power and it will affect everything. Idols depersonalize people. So what do we do? How do you deal with idols? Because whether this one is for you or not, one of them probably will as we look at this over this weekend. How do you deal when our hearts start to go after an idol? When we start to worship something that isn't the true and living God? Even though we believe that with our whole heart, we, we act not in accordance with that knowledge. What do we do? You can't resist idols by behavior management. Like I said before, if sin is downstream from the idol, we have to get back upstream to the heart and what the heart is believing. And you have to replace the love of an idol, the love of something that God has created, with the love of the Creator Himself. Ages ago, when people used to write sermon titles that were nearly as long as a sermon, Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon, a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I wish I could, you know, it wouldn't get a lot of hits on Facebook or whatever, but it'd be great to be able to title sermons like that. But he says this, um, he says a moralist, so he's talking about someone who's just trying to be a good person, who hasn't really come to understand the gospel, someone who's just trying to be good. He says a moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to displace his love of the world by thinking about how bad the world is. Misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart his love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so the heart will be removed from it, or by setting forth another greater object, even God. If that was all too wordy for you, all he's saying is this, your heart wants to love something, with all it's got. And you can't just say to your heart, 
don't worship power because it'll be terrible. You can't just convince yourself that it's a really bad idea to worship that idol. You need a far greater thing to draw your affections into. Rather than just refusing one, you need to demonstrate one is better. To give you like a really practical example, if I want to stay faithful to Mel, my wife, in marriage, the best thing I can do is not to get a book and just, uh, as I see women, just note down all the things I don't like about them. And I think, oh, yeah, she's kind of a bit like that or she's like that or whatever. And then hope that that will repel me from other women and being unfaithful. Of course, the right thing is to invest in relationship in her and to love her, to see her as excellent and the one that God has called me to be faithful to till death do us part. That's what will nourish a marriage and a relationship, not simply convincing myself that the other options are worse. And so it is with idols. We will see that the damage that idols cause is incredible. But the truth is, our heart will just flee to another idol. And we'll idol swap. And you'll see that over this weekend. That when power stops working for us, we just switch over to comfort. And that doesn't work, so we go to approval. And that doesn't work, so we go to control. And then flip back between them, rather than turning and repenting and turning to the true and living God. What you need is a clear view of Christ. And so when Jesus says to them, those who would exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, we need to see clearly his life that we might be drawn to his example and the love of Christ. Look at what it says in Philippians 2, 3 to 11. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through was in, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is our example. Christ has real power and yet uses it as a servant for the good of others. He's our example. More than that, whom will be more worthy of worship than the God who rules over the universe and yet bore nails on a cross for you? Your idol would never, could never do that because it's not even real. Why would we worship the creation over the Creator? When you look at the goodness of Jesus, the power that He has, and His exercise in goodness toward us in Christ, why would we worship anything else? So if you want to displace an idol of the heart, the first thing is to know your God. As simple as it is, the exercise of daily Bible reading is the, the exercise of daily murdering your idol. Every day, there is a, a shopping list of idols that are presented to us on billboards, wherever it is on our phones as we, as we head to work. We're being bombarded with messages saying, worship, worship, worship. And unless early in the day or at a clear point in your life, the Word of God is speaking louder and truer, we will go after idols. We'll be drawn after them and we'll feel the consequences. Daily Bible reading is not daily Bible reading. That's too small a term for it. It is an idol-killing behavior. It is setting our hearts right. It is not just managing our behaviors downstream and being like, my life's in chaos, what do I do now? But going upstream and saying, what does my heart want to worship and why not Christ? And praying that the Spirit would reveal. But the other thing this passage reveals is that as we look to Christ, as we understand Him through Scriptures, that we see that we are not weak. We don't have to be so insecure. We don't need to demonstrate our power in this world because in Christ we have the power of indestructible life. It is the sign of insecurity to go after the idol of power in this world because ultimately you know that death is coming and you don't have any real power. But for those for whom it has been given indestructible life, you can say, whatever you do to me. I mean, Jesus says that, that right? He says, don't fear people who can just kill you. He's so casual about it. He's like, don't, don't fear people who can just kill you. Fear him who after death can throw you, has the power to throw you into hell. And the reason he says, if you fear him, you'll know that you don't have to fear him because he has redeemed you and saved you. The truth is, in Christ, we aren't weak, so we can be weak in this world. You don't have to be so insecure. You can take criticism. 
You can take criticism in the work context, in the home, or wherever it is, because you're like, I know, right? I agree. The cross agrees with you. In fact, you haven't even got to the half of it, right? It's fine. But people who worship power can't take criticism because you can't bear looking weak in front of other people. And it also means to serve. Following Christ in the world's eyes will definitely make you weak. Unless you find ways of avoiding it or avoiding inconvenient passages or the ones that really bear on your life, you will be a fool for Jesus in this lifetime. If you open the scriptures and wholeheartedly obey them, you will miss out on things. You will look weak. You'll miss out on the kind of possessions that other people would look at and go, that's a significant person. You'll miss out on promotions. You'll miss out on opportunities. You'll miss out on all kinds of things because you'll say, I'm a servant and the power that I have is to serve other people. You will miss out. And yet, in Christ, you don't miss out on anything. That if you already have eternal life, if you already have Jesus, you already have everything that is real and everything else is an illusion. Know that you have everything and serve. And then lastly is this. If God has given you any kind of power or influence over other people, have you thought seriously about how you are to use this to serve? If at work you run a team, do you look to serve other people? To fulfill your job description, to hear your KPIs, to cover your responsibilities, but also to serve the people under you, rather than just have them serve you and work you up to promotion. Are you, are you unwilling to take a hit for other people or take responsibility for things because you don't want to look bad because you're trying to make your way up the chain? That's not how a servant lives and operates in the workplace. If you have other kinds of influence, if you've been given money or possessions or any of these things that have influence in the world, are you using them to serve other people? Because if not, that's not in line with the gospel you say you believe wholeheartedly. And if you worship power, you'll want to hold on to everything that would make you significant or influential. And Christ says, let it go. Use it to serve other people. Happiness is not found in gathering power and influence to yourself, but in using it for the good of others. And Christ is our example. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy, for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross. It was his joy to demonstrate power and weakness. While he was on the cross, he could have called down fire on the people who were mocking him and calling him weak. He could have demonstrated power, and yet he didn't for the sake of those, for the elect, for those he was calling home to himself. If you know God, you are called to use power to serve and not to worship it. And I'm going to pray that God would give us the strength to do that as we dig into idols and to the many that will take hold of our hearts over this weekend. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you alone have true power, that you alone are worthy of having power, that you alone can be trusted with power. And so we pray that we, in following Christ, would be able to use power to serve others and not to serve ourselves. That we would know that true joy is found in knowing and loving you rather than the idol of power. That you would teach us not just to believe these things intellectually, but to live them out. That we would live out our identity as servants because we are called not to worship power. And that we'd be able to go into a city that worships power and demonstrate a different way of living and operating. That it would not be so amongst us that we would lead like the world leads. And Father, we pray that you would do this, that you might be glorified in your people, and that Christ's name may be lifted high, that we might be seen to be weak, so that you might be seen to be strong, that all glory might be to you. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.